at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. And so they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock of Horeb, strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massah and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held, uh, held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. Am I doing the wrong reading? Oh, you should do. Oh, my gosh. What should it be? Seven. Oh, just a seven? That, that bit's a good bit. That's a good okay, bit. cool. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. That was <laughs> Patty was telling me, hey, when she gets to Revelation, you've got to get up and stop her. <laughs> um, so let me start with a story. A few years ago, we arrived into uh, New Zealand, uh, July 2010. Um, in August, uh, we got together. I, I knew nobody in New Zealand, nobody in Christchurch. This was completely new for, for us as a family, for me, as a pastor. Um, and they held the first uh, you know, meeting of a cluster of Baptist pastors. They were going to vote on a new regional leader. And this was my first meeting, my first encounter with my fellow Baptist pastors in this place. They had booked out the Addington Coffee Co-op. And um, I was kind of excited because it's kind of lonely in ministry sometimes, so it's kind of good to get to know people, and especially you haven't grown up in the country and you don't really know anyone. This was a great opportunity, and it was a disaster, absolute disaster. I was fighting. Um, I just came into this meeting, and I just sat there, and I thought, oh, my goodness, what have I got myself into? Um, the, the guy that they were going to vote on, they asked him to leave the room, and for the next half an hour, obviously there were two or three camps all fighting against each other. And I just kind of put my hand up and said, huh, this is interesting. <laughs> How do you guys get anything done like this? Oh, Rob, you know, there's history here. You've got to work through it and all this and that. And I kind of left that whole group quite discouraged um, until about four weeks later when the first earthquake hit, September 4th at 4 a.m. in the morning. And then all of a sudden, 
something kind of galvanized all these pastors. All of a sudden, over the course of the next few months, these earthquakes had hit, we decided we need to do stuff together. And all of a sudden, these camps that had broken off, and you know, whether they were uh, theological lines or, or you know, traditional lines, whatever they might have been, they had all come together. And then the February quake hit. And all of a sudden, it wasn't just Baptists anymore, it was everyone. And all the churches started working together. We had these incredible meetings, um, you know, where we were all in it together. No one, I mean, it was amazing. And we were thinking, you know, in tragedy, God's doing a great work. He's bringing us together. About three years later, guess what? Everyone went back to what they were doing. It was amazing. I remember, like, clearly, as I was reflecting when I was leaving a power, I, I spent quite a bit of time kind of debriefing with the elders and kind of reflecting over the time there. And I said, it's amazing, the feeling in those first couple of years after that February quake, you know, that there was a real movement of God and bringing these churches together. And year three onwards, we just all went back to doing our own thing. It was, it was just almost like that. And it's really interesting with this morning's story. It's actually um, the Israelites were kind of mumbling and grumbling when they were in Egypt. And then they were galvanized as God created this miracle of leading them out. And literally within two weeks, they're back to grumbling. It's amazing. And it's, it's actually, I've got, I've got Kathy to read the last story of that section. But it's actually three instances one after the other. The first one starts two weeks after leaving Egypt, and there's a pattern to this. Take a look. Two weeks after leaving Egypt, they are grumbling. The water is bitter. They arrive at a well, and the water doesn't taste good. It's bitter, so they grumble. God performs a miracle. The water's fresh, and everyone's happy. Yay. They keep going. Four weeks after leaving Egypt, guess what they're doing again? They're grumbling. But rather than the element being the issue, they've got a real issue with Moses. We're hungry, and it's your fault, Moses. It's all your fault. So it's escalated a little. Not just about the water being bitter. It's actually Moses' fault now. And God performs a miracle, and they're all happy again. Now, this miracle is amazing, by the way. He creates this, this thing. He says, okay, I'm going to provide this thing called manna. It's like this kind of bready thing that tastes like honey. And you'll collect it every day, and you can only have enough for the day because it will go off by the next day. I don't want to collect more than one day. And then there'll be little quails running around, and you'll grab that too, and basically barbecue chicken and honey bread. Cool. Amazing. What a miracle God providing for these people. But guess what? Six weeks later, or well, two weeks after that last incident, guess what they're doing? They're not just grumbling anymore. They're basically at the verge of revolting. They're quarreling. They're angry. And this time, rather than it's the element, no, it's not Moses, they're actually questioning whether there actually is a God. There's no water. Is there really a God? And guess what God does? Performs a miracle, and they are happy. If this was your kid, uh, <laughs> uh, 
there's so many amazing things just about this. This is literally within the first instances where God has split the sea open, saved them from certain death. And they're grumbling because the water's a little bit bitter or they're a bit hungry. I mean, some of it you might feel, hey, you know, we're in the desert, there's no food, there's no water, we're worried. But God doesn't even get angry at them. He just performs the miracle. Patiently dealing with them. One commentator made this great point. He said, you know, it was like Egypt were born, uh, sorry, the Israelites were born out of Egypt. And now in the desert, they're in their infancy and God has to take them by the hand. And he has to be patient. You know how we have to be with little kids. You just got to be patient with them. They're young. They're not getting it. And it seems like God is just... (laughs) Okay, look, I'll give you water. Look, you've got food. Look, I'm taking care of you. You'd think, what is going on with these people? It's not like there's years that have gone by. There's weeks we're talking about. And they forget that easily. They forget what God is doing amongst them that quickly. Why didn't they just trust God to help them? Why? Why couldn't they just trust him? I mean, many of us would say, oh, well, you know, it's a lack of faith. Yeah, I think that's the excuse we use a lot of the times, isn't it? Even for ourselves. Why don't you trust God? Well, I lack faith. But I don't actually think that's the reason. It's impossible that they lack faith because look at what God's done for them. Every time. The problem here is actually one that we still struggle with today, and it's called self-centeredness. You see, the Israelites at this point are very focused on who? Themselves, right? They can't see beyond themselves. And when you can't see beyond yourself, you miss what God's actually doing around you. Paul, uh, writing to the Philippians, said this, Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, not on the things above. In challenging the Philippians, he says, your God's your stomach. You grumble a little bit in your stomach and everything's an issue now. And today, we tend to do that. And as Christians, we're the worst. If we talk about mundane, simple things, we really do get hung up. I did it myself just a few weeks ago. We got a call out of the blue on a Friday afternoon after all that's been going on in our lives. Monica and I made the decision that Monica needs to take a break from work and just just chill for a little bit because there's just been too much going on in our lives. So we'll pull back a little bit. We're in a lovely house. No one's moving. We'll just stay and just chill for the next six months. And then we get a call after we've made that decision on a Friday afternoon that they're going to sell the house and we've got to move. You know what my reaction was? Well, there's kids here. I went in the backyard. Really? Really, God? Is this your timing? Thank you. Self-centeredness. I was so caught up in where we were in that moment that I didn't stop to think, This will be our sixth move in 10 years, and every time he's provided. Every time he's brought us to a place where we've been actually pretty good. How could I not trust that this sixth time 
still provide for us. And guess what he did within a week? He provided. In fact, we're going into a nicer place. Sure, there's a disruption of moving. Sure, it gives us an opportunity to spring clean. You know, tackle some of those boxes that we keep saying we're going to do. Now we have to do. When we're so caught up in ourselves, we forget and we lose focus. Our perception becomes askew. You know what's the worst for us today as Christians? Politics. Social demands. Because they distract us. Whether it's one policy coming out, we've got to fight it. And another policy comes out, and we've got to fight that. We've got to assert ourselves, and we've got to do this. And we forget that actually God's got this actually under control. He has never empowered us to go fight the powers that be. He's given us the task to save people in his name. And how well are we doing that? When was the last time any one of you were able to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you've seen someone's life change before you? How many lives have been changed by policy changes in governments, which, by the way, changes every five years anyway? Governments don't change people. Our great arguments don't change people. The blood of Christ does. And we lose our focus because we're so caught up in our times. And that's what's happening here with the Israelites. They've just witnessed all these miracles of God and they can't see beyond themselves. Whether it's personal crisis that we always have. I turned 50 on Thursday. And I can tell you in 50 years, there's been always a crisis. Some may be worse than others, but you guys know what I'm talking about. There's never really a year goes by when not something's happening. And as you get older, you feel like it's getting worse. But then I can look beyond that and see how God has worked with it. And I'm like, thank you, Olivia, but I don't know how I'm going to do it. Their God is their stomach. Their mind is set on earthly things, not on heaven above. Peter Enns makes this great comment. He says this, We go through our own desert experiences, honed in on our own lacks and desires, but wholly oblivious to the creations we are, within, to the new creations we are in Christ. To the work that he's already done within us. And to the work that he wants to do through us. I think it's absolutely powerful. And the New Testament church is challenged by this because, you know what, they were living in a pretty horrid time. We think our day, days today are really difficult. You think a pandemic today is really bad. You imagine what it would have been 2,000 years ago. It took you days to get to the next town sometimes. News traveled. <laughs> and yet here you've got Paul who says, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And then Jesus himself says this, So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? 
But the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. What they're both trying to tell us here is, hey, I know life can have its moments, and I know things can really upset us. Lack of water, lack of bread, lack of good leadership. All these things around, they kind of prod us. And, and but he's saying, don't take your eyes off the bigger picture. The Israelites have no idea where they're going to at the moment. They just think they're heading to Canaan. But he's taking them to his mountain where they will encounter God in an incredible way. And if they thought that whatever that has happened in the past was fantastic, they're about to encounter something completely life-changing. But if you get distracted by these little things along the way, you will lose sight. It's not about a lack of faith. It's about maybe turning ourselves outwardly rather than inwardly. And this is what the Israelites were faced with. And maybe for some of you this morning, you're facing as well. I'm not saying it's bad to worry about things. Boy, I worry about things all the time. But sometimes those things take complete control of us and we lose focus on who our God is. Our good and great God. Sometimes we live as though he's not there, that he's not here, that he is not working because we can't see him or hear him or feel him at times. And sometimes just in those moments, we're crippled. I challenge you this week. Take a moment during the week, spend five, ten minutes, just sit down and remember be reminded of what God has already done in your life. What he has already done. And even if you are in a place right now, kind of like yesterday's weather, blown about, strewn about, stuck in Wellington, trying to get home. Even though you might be in that place right now, Remember what God has already done and trust, look beyond yourself, trust that he will work in you, through you, but for you. Amen? I'm going to ask the music team to come.